let me see, what am I going to do today? I am doing, okay, we're going to look here into Romans chapter 1 today. And our text, we're going to be looking into Romans 1.26. I think the last time I was here, I did Romans 1.25. So wanting to just move along in that way, taking a verse each week. So by that time, I think by the year 2055, we may be done. But um, So... What I'd like to do is to just have a quick prayer, and then we'll look into this, these next 25 words. So let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks now that we're able to worship you again. It could be, O oh Lord, without the power of your grace in our life. Many of us sitting here today would still be in bed, still <clears throat> pursuing our own desires. However, you interrupted all of that revealed your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to us in such a saving way that we wanted him. We got saved from hell to heaven. We got into a local church right here, and here we are this morning. So we thank you for this. We ask now that your Spirit will speak to us as we give forth the word. Help me, Lord, not to get in the way, but simply lay out Scripture, and then you do with it in our lives that which your divine will calls to do. Help me to do my part and simply present it accurately, Bless the people, bless this time we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, looking here now in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, we're going to focus on today. But before we do, we're going to find out that this verse is basically about the unsaved community. So we're going to be looking today, normally many verses you look at scripture, you're learning about Christians or the church or God, the nature of God. Or, or, but here we're going to be looking at the unsaved world with which we rub shoulders with every day. So we're talking about what you may call the pagan or the unbeliever or the infidel. And uh, we see this here in just reading Romans 1.26. Uh, For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Our Lord, teach us this word today. May we be able to use this divine knowledge and use it for the saving of souls, for the edifying of believers, for the building up of your church, and ministering to the people right here today. Lord, you know our hearts. And we all look like we're happy and happy to be here, and that very well may be the case. But it could be someone here is going through some difficult times. Perhaps they've not told anyone and they're struggling in silence. Whatever the case may be, Lord, you know us. We ask that you'll take these words and apply them to our heart so that when this service is over, we will have grown closer to you. We will be happy that we came here today. So minister to us to that end, we pray. And help me, Lord, to give the word clearly and understandably through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, looking at this verse, <clears throat> the first thing we see, and when I'm studying Scripture, I'd just like to take it, you know, look at verse by verse or phrase by phrase, pull information out of it, and just see what it is that we have. <clears throat> so if we do that with, <clears throat> with verse number 26, um, <clears throat> we see the phrase, for this cause. Now, if we take that back to the Greek rendering, it's simply the, the phrase, diatautu, 
And we have to ask ourselves the question, for what cause? What cause does, does uh, Paul have in mind? For what cause? Well, this cause is defined way back in verse 18. So we're going to be going back and forth, really, to this verse, to verse 18, 19, 20. So we sort of have to pay attention in that regard. But right away, we're going back to verse 18, looking at the cause of the ungodless and the unrighteous, <clears throat> ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men. That's basically the topic today. The, or we could just say the wickedness of mankind, the wickedness of the unsaved man. And, but the language used here, the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now, what about, what's the verse going to say? What, what about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Well, number one, it says in verse 18, they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now notice, they hold, they, these ungodly people hold the truth. They have the truth. It's not that they're blind and don't have the truth, cannot get access to it. They have it. However, they did not follow it. They did not believe it. Rather, they exploited it. They perverted it. They twisted it. They divorced it from themselves. They wanted to have nothing to do with it, although they had it in their presence. It's not as if they would say, we didn't know. Well, they knew <laughs> the word of God. They had a copy of the word of God. Secondly, we see in this study an interesting phrase in verse 19. I'd like you to focus upon that phrase, which says, that which may be known of God. There it is again, making reference to these ungodly people knew about God. They knew that God was there. They understood the concept of God. They were not atheists. We're not, reading, we're not reading here today about ungodly atheistic people. That's not it. We're talking about those who knew of God and believed in the existence of God, but not the God made known through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then number three, we want to ask ourselves, what about the ungodly and the unrighteous? What is it that they did? Why are they here? Why, are we, why is Scripture making an issue of these people? And in this text, it's making the point that they made a declaration. The ungodly and the unrighteous made a de declaration. And what is that declaration? They professed themselves to be wise. They're walking around with their chest out, and they think they're wise, and everybody's bowing down to them, is the picture that we're having here. They percept themselves to be wise. But you see, verse 22 tells us, in reality, they're fools. They became fools. They became exposed. Their hubris and their arrogance exposed them for who they were. They thought they knew it all. But you know what? For people like this, Scripture has a, reveals to us that God has a certain approach to the person who always has their chest stuck out in proud and arrogance. And you know what this word of God tells us? In Psalm 37, verse 13, there it says that God laughs at the wicked. He laughs at them. They think they're going to withstand God and their chest is out. And they're doing, no, God is in heaven. And the Bible says that indeed he is laughing. They think that they're going to be successful in their stand against God. But of course, we all know better. Fourthly, in this presentation, we're going to see a charge is laid against the ungodly and the unrighteous. <clears throat> and that charge is given to us in verse 23. And what is it? They change the glory of God into an image. 
Now think about that. The glory of God. First of all, if we can even see God, we can't see him. But if we could see the, the greatness of God, and somehow these people here, the ungodly and the righteous, they were able to reduce the greatness and glory of God into an image. An image of a man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. And this is a reference to what we may call idol worship today. They're reducing God down to a mere idol that they could see it, look at it, and bow down to it, and pray to it, something that they could, they could comprehend. They invented their own religion, which includes some kind of idol worship. And we see that greatly in the Old Testament. The pagan cultures, they all worshipped some kind of idol. It would be a tree or an idol carved out of stone or some kind of object they would put their faith into. <clears throat> Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician and physicist and inventor and philosopher, made this statement. He said that there is, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every man's heart, which can only be filled by Jesus Christ. That's pretty insightful. You know, that's really quite a statement. Think about that for this Blaise Pascal's statement here. Let me say that again, and I'm quoting here. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every man's heart, which can be filled only by Jesus Christ. He understood nature, he understood, his, he understood the world around him. But what he is saying here is that mankind, they tend to worship things. But the only one who should be worshipped is the Lord Jesus. Man left to himself will worship and invent religions. And he'll worship money, career, possessions, personal knowledge, relationships, maybe even a hobby. In this text, that we're looking here, the ungodly and the unrighteous, in the end, they worshipped the creation as opposed to the creator. And that's the mistake all pagans make. They worship the creation. And they miss out on worshipping who they should be worshipping, the creator. And that's very easy to do. You look at this world, and there are just fabulous things about this planet, just planet Earth. Or if you take a telescope and you look out there into space and you see the bodies that are out there, it would be easy, very easy to fall into a trap of worshiping things instead of worshiping the one true God. As a result of this, as a result of worshiping everything but God himself, we find here in verse number 24, the text says that God gave them up. And you look at that phrase, paradokin altus hotheos. God gave them up. And you're going to find in this text, God gave these pagans up, and four, it mentions three times in verse 24, the phrase, God gave them up. In verse 26, God gave them up. In verse 28, God gave them up. So it's making the point, these wicked people who insist on having their own, God takes his hand off you. You know, there is that event, that experience that you do see in, while the Lord pleads for sinners to come to Christ. There are times also when our Lord will take his hand off and say, okay, if you don't want me, just go ahead, do what you want. And you know what? They're going to make ruin of their life. And that's what that's making reference to there in verse 24 when it says that God gave these ungodly and unrighteous people, he gave them up. 
because we know that God will not force himself upon mankind. He will not force himself. You see, as we look at God's revelation to mankind, now God has given us two forms of revelation. There is what's called general revelation. And you know what that is? General revelation is nature. You just look in the world about you. It tells a story. Or you could get the telescope and go out there into space. That tells a st- And there's still no end to space as far as we, we, we can't find an end to it. Can you imagine that? What, what? It can't go on like, I was going to say forever. <laughs> it doesn't have to be an end to the, But as far as our telescopes go, bam, there it is. Space and all kinds of things in that space. And we're looking here and analyzing God and trying to understand and comprehend him. And um, we get into this difficulty, and this is what we call general revelation, God's creation. But then there's also specific revelation, personal revelation, and that is the Bible. So God has communicated to us, his creatures, two ways. In general revelation, in creation, and that, by the way, speaks a message as well. It doesn't give a message of Jesus Christ. But it does give a message that there is a God, that he is present, that he is powerful. And so we cannot say, well, I'm an atheist, I don't, see, I don't see God. Well, you know what? You do see what he makes, and what they show you is overwhelming if we analyze just this earth. But if you want to go out and look in space, you can also do that as well. General revelation, and then followed up by specific revelation, the word of God. And through these two mediums, God speaks to his creation. And that's what he's making mention here in our church. God will permit the unbeliever to pursue his own depraved way. But you know what? John 7 said, but here's, here's a wonderful principle. John chapter 7, verse 17, in the sense, God says this. If a man wants to know the truth about God... No matter where he is, he could be in the jungles of Africa or he could be in New York City. In his heart, he wants to know the truth about God. God will get the message to him. It does not say that he'll believe it, but it does say that he will, if he truly wants to know about God and he can't find no, God gives a promise, he'll get the word to him. Doesn't promise him he's going to receive it, but he will at least have it, have it presented unto him. And if you have the message presented and you still, you want to go your own stubborn, independent way, well, then you're able to do that. For clarity's sake, let me give a couple examples of how this works, if I may. Let's take an apple tree. We're talking about nature right now. Let's look at an apple tree. We know that an apple tree cannot produce a pineapple, right? I mean, duh, we know this. But, but you might ask, well, why can't it? It's not the nature of the tree. The nature of, a, of an apple tree is to produce apples. And it will always produce apples. It will never produce a pineapple. Why? The nature of the tree. For it to produce a pineapple would go against the very nature of what the tree is all about. It can only produce that which is an extension of itself. Another, let's take a monkey. A monkey can only give birth to other monkeys. It cannot give birth to a giraffe. Why? That's the nature of a monkey. It'll produce another monkey. It cannot give life to other things. Now, man is quite similar. 
He cannot violate his own nature. We have, as mankind, we have a nature. And you can't violate it. As much as you want to try, you can't do it. That's because you're stuck in your nature. That's who and what you are. Hence, mankind is born when we come out of our mother. We are born in a kind of bondage to sin, and we remain there. And we will remain in bondage to sin unless, in some way, we're able to overcome and escape the bondage. But we do not have within us the ability to escape. It's our nature. It's our nature to be, we sin, we sin by choice and by nature. That's what we do. And and you cannot avoid it. You can't get away from it. Unless something dramatic happens to the human being. And I'm thinking in particular of John. uh, There's many verses here I could turn to. I'm looking here in John 6.44. Maybe some of you may have that memorized. Does does John 6.44 ring a bell to anyone off the top of your head? Okay. Well, here's what it is. It would be a good verse to memorize. And there it says, no man, Jesus speaking, no man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Do you hear that language? That's exclusionary language. That's strong, heavy language. Jesus himself is saying this, that no man can come. And this is a statement, not that the sinner won't come to Christ. It's a stronger statement. The sinner can't come to Christ. The sinner doesn't have it within him to come to Christ, is what we're seeing here in John chapter 6, verse 44. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent him draw him. This is a problem of nature. Sinners won't come to Christ. And why is it? Because they cannot violate their own nature. We're born with a nature, and that nature is angry toward God. You're born with it. It's not that you develop it. That is what you're all about by front through birth and being born by sinners, of sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And that is because our nature, when we are born, spiritually speaking, we are born spiritually dead. Think about it. We're still born on the spiritual. In the spiritual level, we're born dead. In terms of spirituality, we do not have the ability to come to Christ on our own. So you men, you know, the sinner out there in the street, we can preach to them, repent and believe in Christ. Now he thinks the problem is, he, I, I, choose, I don't choose to have Christ. I don't want Christ in my life. I want something else. That's what he thinks. But the truth is, he can't come to Christ. He doesn't have it within. He is so far repelled from God by his own nature. He cannot in and by himself come unto Christ. Well, then how is the sinner to be saved? Why are we told to go through all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Because, okay, that's a good girl there. Excuse me one second here. Might take my medication here. (laughs) Thank you, dear. That's a good wife right there, you know. That's a good girl who knows that I'm choking up here and she sees it. Not only knows it, but does something bad. That's pretty. Thank you, my dear. And by the way, I want to tell you, that was a good... Uh, a good uh, testimony you gave today. And I just asked her to do that five minutes before we started. If she did not like that, it was good. Excuse me a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where am I here? My, <clears throat> where was I here? And I'm, I'm a wonderful, powerful message here. So we're still talking here about being spiritually dead. Um, <clears throat> and so one must come to Christ, be born again by the, by the Holy Spirit. He must be overwhelmed. 
his irresistible form be overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. In order for that sinner who is blind and deaf to come unto Christ, the Holy Spirit has to come upon him. In and of himself, he'll never get saved. He'll never figure it out. Because, again, by nature, we are enemies to God. In our eyes, we're enemies to God. We don't want God. We want to go our own stubborn, independent way. And probably that may be some of your problems and my problem occasionally. I want to be me. I don't want to do what Jesus tells me to do. I want to do my own. And that's usually sin. So that, that's a problem there. Well, then how are we to be saved if we are, we are compelled away or compelled away from Christ? And that is we must be drawn by an external power, of course, which you know what I'm getting at, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit, the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, his work coming upon us must be irresistible because if it wasn't irresistible, guess what? We would resist. We would successfully resist. So nothing less than the awesome power of the Holy Spirit will draw us unto the Lord. And this, and this of course, is what we call conversion. When people step out of darkness into light, when they forsake the world and come unto Christ, Great things happen, and this and this I'm sure it had to happen to every one of us, if we're truly born again and part of the family of God through faith in Christ. All of us have had to go through this. We are part of the world, citizens of the world, and somehow the Lord pulled us out of that and brought us unto Himself. And now here we are sitting in a church, loving the Lord. What a new creature you are, because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does to us. And this can happen, and it does. As we look and interview people, it happens under all kinds of circumstances. But we know it happens when the gospel is preached. That is, what, that is the, the importance of always preaching the gospel. Because when the gospel is preached, that's when people are saved. Now, just a little side thought here. I'm going to throw this in here for nothing. I wasn't going to say anything. about. When I say the word gospel, when the gospel, you go back to the original text, it's the word euangelion. What is the gospel. So for having a test, um, I taught in Bible college for a number of years, and I would give my students this little quiz. All right, everybody, quiz time. Get a piece of paper. Only one question, okay? What is it? Define for me the gospel. What is it? We talk about the gospel. We talk about preaching the gospel, gospel this, gospel that. Okay, what is the gospel? And of course, I think I probably told this before anyway, but if I hadn't, uh, the gospel is what? The death, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3. The gospel is, defining the gospel, maybe 1 to 4. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. If I come in here and I give you a lot of nice stories, and I do not present to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I'm not preaching the gospel. The gospel is that cross. But not only the cross, it is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians first chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, that is the gospel. When the gospel is preached, God is pleased to draw sinners unto himself. Not all sinners. In fact, not a majority of sinners. But he will draw a handful of sinners when the gospel goes forth. Sometimes he uses a personal witness. That may, I, taught, you know, I shared with you in my experience, my buddy, my roommate Al, uh, he came to Christ. And I'm sure, I'm sure some of you... Maybe, hopefully, it should be all of you could stand up here and give a testimony of someone who the Lord saved when you witnessed to him. Again, you may have given a track. Maybe you gave him a testimony. Maybe you took him to church, and there's all different ways of doing this. 
But nonetheless, in the end, hopefully that you can, and we all have a personal experience of sharing Christ with others, and we know God does this great thing during time of prayer. Think about prayer. Praying for someone, I'm sure you may have a burden for a person in your life. It may be a parent, a brother, a sister, somebody that you may work with, and you have this special burden, and you're praying for them. Lord, oh Lord, save this man, or save my brother, save my sister. And you're concerned, and many times these things occur, and the Lord overwhelms the resistance and brings that person savingly to Christ. Quick examples how this happens, and I will conclude. You go down to the shore. Do people go to the shore here? And you're far away. But we used to go down to, the, down to um, Ocean City, New Jersey. We'd go there about once a year. And, um, you know, you, I go out there, and I was like around 12 years old around this time. And I'm out in the ocean, and I'm swimming out. And so the, the, the uh, beach is behind me, so I'm looking at this. And there's boats, you know, going by. And I'm thinking, this is really great. And I'm loving this. And I hear, I hear the, the, the lifeguard blowing the whistle. You know, they'll, they'll blow the whistle if there's a problem. And I'm not paying any attention to that because I'm looking at the skyline and, and the water and, and taking in all the sun. It's really beautiful. And so, I'm, you know, I'm not paying attention. So eventually, though, the whistle doesn't stop. So I turn around. What, what's the problem out there? And the problem was me. You know, I had drifted way out there, way further than what I should have done. And, and I, of course, then I realized I was the problem, but now I was scared. Because, oh, my goodness, son, this is really deep stuff here. So what am I? So I start, you know, try to swim to get back. Uh, and by the grace of God, I did. You know, obviously, obviously, I didn't drown, so therefore, you know, I made it back. Um, but had I been, let's say I couldn't have gotten back. The lifeguard would have had gone in there and got me and carried me out of the water because I couldn't do it myself. Had I, you know succumb to the water and all this. I would have been rescued by the lifeguard. But that's just an analogy I'm trying to show you about salvation. It's the same thing. Without Christ, we're, we're in the water, it's over our head, we don't know what to do, and we're starting to sink. We need help, we need to be rescued. And that's what salvation is, and that's what happened to you and me. At a different time in our life, we were rescued from headed to hell, rescued by the gospel and rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example of this. Let's talk about Lazarus. Now, we all know the story of Lazarus, so I don't have to go into great detail concerning him. You'll find this, though, in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. We know he died. He was dead for four days, remember? And Jesus is called. And we find that uh, Lazarus, they they called Jesus to, to respond to the situation. And Jesus, you know, we have a long story about it, but eventually Jesus makes a command to Lazarus, who is dead four days, and he simply says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> and there, the scripture says, he that was dead came forth. Now, he'd been dead for f- four days. Now, <clears throat> I looked at this from a medical point of view, and I <clears throat> read a doctor writing on this situation. What happens when the body dies, and he's writing about the resurrection of Christ, what had to happen for Jesus to resurrect? Now, this is from a medical point of view. <clears throat> and he said this, that what has to happen, number one, among many things, is that the blood has to begin to flow again in the body. Now, we know when someone dies, you drain the blood. I don't know if they did it back then. But anyway, the blood has to start to flow 
if you're going, if somebody dead comes to life, the blood has to start to flow. This doctor, this is a doctor's word. Secondly, uh, brain waves become active because at the point of death, the brain shuts down. Now the brain waves become active. The lungs begin to take in air. The pulse begins to throb. The dilated pupils begin to respond to light. And then there's this sensation of pain and discomfort will now occupy the body. And the bodily organs progressively awaken and become active. All these things happen biologically if someone who is dead is brought back to life, like we saw here that we're talking about here concerning Lazarus. And more importantly, the testimony of Scripture tells us in John 11.44, get these words, he that was dead came forth. <laughs> Talk about an oxymoron. He that was dead came forth. You, now you know that's a picture of us. We know that we are spiritually dead. We're born spiritually dead. And a miracle has to happen for us to be saved. Just like for Lazarus is dead. And only Jesus could put the life into him that he would come forth. And that's true for you as well. God placed his spiritual life in us. That's why you're here today. That's not because of what we were able to devise, but what he did to us and for us. And the astonishing thing is, none of us deserved it. None of us earned it. But that, of course, that's what the Bible calls grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at at Christ's expense. Grace. And this is what we have here. 1144, John 1144. He that was dead came forth. I'll give you one more quick example to drive the point home so that when you go home and someone said, what did the pastor talk about today? Well, you may be able to remember it if I give you a third example. And let's talk about the important man of John 5, 8. Here he had been afflicted for 38 years. It's a long time for affliction. And yet one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and he walks away. Again, it's the same thing. All these are illustrations about our spiritual condition. Our spiritual condition, we cannot see with our eyes. And so we have to have physical examples that we can sort of identify with it. We know this, that sinners, unsaved sinners, have no ability to save themselves. It would be good. You want to, go, you want to get saved? Okay, go over to this church here and join the church and get saved. You can't do that. There's no, we can't make salvation happen. That is a work of the Lord upon our... And you know why that is? What the church called for is that mankind is not only depraved, he is totally depraved. 100% depravity for mankind. Therefore, how can he be saved? Therefore, how can he believe in Jesus? He's totally depraved. Of course, that is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us out of his power, out of his love, out of his mercy. He saves us from a condition of total depravity, to faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore to be saved. So we're talking here about those who are spiritually dead, who are spiritually blind, and how in the world can they be saved if they are in that condition? You're asking for us to hand out a track and witness, and I hope you do that, and we should be doing that, and I hope you have a witness. You're knocking on doors once, at least according to your time, we try to do about once a month to get out there and knock on doors and tell people about the Lord. But we know this, if I open the door and I know that person's not a believer, I know he has not the ability to receive Christ nor the desire. 
That's what puts me in prayer, on my knees, praying for this person, because I know the person and the power of the Lord, he can awaken all this. He can give spiritual sight, and that's, that's how salvation occurs. And that's what he did for you and me. If the Lord did not intercede in our experience, we'd still be out there with a the pagan world. But God was merciful to us and called us irresistibly unto himself and gives us the gift of eternal life. And really, that's why we are here. You know, um, let me give you an example of this. Okay, I take you back. <laughs> Just take you back. I keep taking I take you back to my football days. And we had a number of coaches. Some of them were good. Some of them were really bad. Well, we had this one guy. <clears throat> he was like the linebacker coach, and I was doing that at the time. I did something. We're, we're having drills, and I did something drastically wrong. I don't know what it was. I don't remember what it was, but I do remember this. The coach comes to me. He said, Donnie Britton? Yeah. You see that tar over there? Uh, no. Donnie Britton? Look, you're getting smart with me, boy. You see that tar over there? I want you to run to it. Get, come back. I said, but coach, I don't see any tar. Where am I going to run to? You see where I'm pointing, boy? Yeah. What do you see? I see a tire. Oh, are you saying tire? Oh, see, he, he, that's the southern way of saying tire is tar. You see that tar? Well, he meant tire, so I understood what it was. But the point is this. We could have had that argument discussion all day long, it would never sunk in. And you know what? In a way, that's what salvation is. Salvation will never sink in to the unsaved man unless the Spirit of God enters in to make the Word of God clear and then also make the sinner willing to want to receive Christ. I think of a man named Harry Pacioli. When, um, when I was first married, Faye and I were first married, we lived in Ocean City for the first year summer, I guess it was summer, and um, I worked at a hotel in Ocean City, New Jersey. I don't think that, I'm pretty sure the hotel's not standing, because it looked like it was about to fall back, way back then, fall down when I, was, <laughs> when I was there many years ago, but it was the Lincoln Hotel in Ocean City, and I think it was, once you go over, this, over the bridge to go into Ocean City, I the first hotel on the right, I believe, but it was an old, big structure not there now. Anyway, I was working for this guy. The thing is, he was blind. The man owned the hotel, and he was blind. He had a C&I dog called Heidi, and Heidi would lead him all around. That summer, I became his right-hand man for whatever reason. I don't know, but he wouldn't be. Okay, all right, Harry, Harry Pacholi. Okay, Harry, what do you want? All right, all right. All right, now take me up to the sixth floor in the room 638. Now, he's got the dog. And he has me, and we're going to go to the elevator, go to 638. So we, we come to the door, and he said, now open the door. No, somebody could be in there. No, I want you to open that door. Okay. I open the door, and I walk in. Oh, gee, I, made it. I walked out of that room quick and shut the door. I said, Harry, I told you, we shouldn't go into that room, because we shouldn't see what's in there. Well, that's the whole summer went like this. That guy would try to tell me what to do and, and this and that, but he was totally blind. He couldn't see. And, and he would stumble over things, and I'd you'd be there sometime to pick him up if he didn't have the dog, and I'd have to open the door for him and all this kind of thing. But you know, spiritually, that's what we're like. We're blind. And we stumble over all kind of things. If we don't have Christ in our heart, we are spiritually blind. That's why when you witness to people, and they take offense. You know why? 
Because they're blind. They do not understand what it is you're attempting to share with them. The depravity of the sinner is not partial. In fact, it is total. Well, let me finish this up here. Let me talk about a phrase here in our text before we leave it. In verse 26, looking at the phrase, vile affections. You see that there in verse 26. And that comes from the word, passe atomus, vile affections. Men are given over to their vile affections. And what is meant by vile affections? Vile affections means to be disgraceful, shameful, or passionate desires. You see, our text says, for even, and what's our text tell you? Even our women did change the natural use of the body into that which is against nature. Verse 26, or it's against, pasa, fison, or against nature. In other words, what this text is talking about here, a kind of behavior which is against nature itself. It violates the natural instinct of normal behavior. And of course, I think you can understand what I'm talking about, and it is the habit or the practice of homosexuality is what we have here. Now, you may want to ask yourself, who in the world wants to talk about homosexuality? That's something that's sort of grotesque. What do you want to talk? You know why I bring it up? Because the Bible brings it up. And that's my job to present to you what's in the Bible. doesn't matter if I like it or not. doesn't matter if it's pleasant. And to proclaim it and let the Spirit of God do with it that which he desires to do. And that's what you have a picture of here. And so um, in this verse... Not only, by the way, do we have an even in our own day an evil such as homosexuality, but you know there is a new creature in town that you now have to deal with as Christians. It is the artificially manipulated transgender victim. And now you are seeing more and more of this. And um, this is where the basic biology is interrupted, where you have gen- uh, gender dysphoria, which is a distress related to one's assigned gender. Now, you've all read and seen stories of Frankenstein, right? And who is Frankenstein? This, this, this uh, scientist made this man, right? Frankenstein, and he's big, this monster. We're not far from doing that right now. We're changing men into women. And women, and have you seen, I've seen them. And you'll, you'll see a man... But he looks weird. Or you'll see a woman. Is, is that a woman? Is, that, is she coming after me? Because it looks like there's going <laughs> to be a problem here. But that is what we're engaged in right now. That's what's taking place in our, in our world. And it's something that we have to learn to deal with. And, um, you know, so I'm bringing this to the attention. That's the world in which we live with this new creature that we're now, that we call the transgender individual where a man looks like a girl and a girl looks like a man. But you know what's happening? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Mark these words. Avoiding profane and vain babbling and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. And we are in that age where you have science called science. Oh, we respect this. But you're destroying the lives of people. And yet these things go on. And you know, like this in human history, things come up in human history from time to time, 
And you see the progression seems to be getting worse instead of better. Well, I could go on. I'm gonna, I'm, I just got to stop because <laughs> time's up, I know. Let me just give a closing thought. What are we to do? Living in a world like this, where we're now not only have the normal sins that you're aware of and homosexuality, now you have these new creatures going on. What are we to do? You know, it always comes down to the same three things that I would recommend as I read my Bible and I say, what am I to do about this living in a world like this? First of all, realizing I'm not a perfect person. I got my own error. So I've got to be before God, honest before God, confess my sin and turn from them and follow the Lord. I want to live, what am I going to do in a world like this? Live my life for Christ. I want to live for, now what does that mean? That's a nice phrase. What does it mean, living my life for Christ? Well, that would mean, obviously, turning my life over to him, uh, doing some of the things we talked about before, witnessing with the Lord, or teaching God's word, or helping a friend, helping a poor person. There's all kinds of things that we can do. That's what you want to do. Number one, live your life for the Lord. You can't dictate what another person's going to do. We can't tell that person to stop being a homosexual or stop this. All I can do is live my life. Number two, seriously discover what God's will is for my life and do it. Where do I fit in in the world in which I live? What am I to do? I hear I live in America, and I have these things, and there's many more pressing things. I mean, we live in a world now when you know, our, our military has gone downhill quickly. That's another whole story altogether, which maybe get into that sometime, which is a major catastrophe taking place there. So we got all kinds. So what are we to do? What's the best thing you could do for your personal life and for the good of the United States of America? What can you do? Get the gospel out. Be bold in sharing Christ. Live a godly life. Be engaged in your church so that it will go forth and influence the community. And the last thing, and I close with this. What are we to do? And I say we need to perform the Ezekiel effect. So let's do the Ezekiel effect. But what is the Ezekiel effect? What did Ezekiel do in Ezekiel chapter 33? What was he instructed to do? When he sees the enemy, he's to get that trumpet, and blast that trumpet. That was his calling. But that's what we're to do. When we have opportunity to share Christ, blast blast the trumpet of the gospel. Announce to people the word of God. Live the word of God. Serve the Lord. And that's what we're to do in this world in which we are living. And you know what? We're either going to sound the alarm as Christians, sound the alarm and make a difference in this world, or the events that we just looked at in verse 26 will come upon us. And then you'll have people suffering, struggling, and it will not be a very nice world. Our reality will not be nice. As our scripture says, for this cause God gave them up to vile affections. Do you want to have that to occur to our culture? I mean, all we got to do is sit back. Who said that? All, all that has to happen for sin to remain is for Christians to do nothing. And you know, that's our big danger. Because we are comfortable. We're not, in a, basically, we're not an aggressive people. I'm not. I need, I need an explosion to get me to <laughs> do something. That's not good. I don't brag about it. It's not good. But either our Christians are going to stand up and become active in the culture in which we live, or you're not going to have a culture. And I, I, you know what? As an older person, I can see that happening. That, that's... I used to hear that kind of language. Yeah, okay. But you know what? I can see that happening very clearly. The liberty and freedom and ease of living that we have, you're going to lose this thing. We're in the process of losing it right now. And we need Christians to be on their knees in prayer, Christians bold in our witness, 
Churches, active churches, coming together whenever you can and be bold in bringing people to church. If you got a friend and you know they're not going to church, hey, buddy, hey, you want to come to church with me today? You know, try to think, bring them that they can be under the sound of God's word and be part of a large army which will get the word of God out and make a difference in our culture because if the Christian community doesn't do it, you're going to lose the whole bowl of wax. I, I, I hope this is not a prediction or prophecy I make that comes true, but I really, in my heart, as I said before, I'm 78, I've seen a lot of stuff go down, and I can tell you, I can see us going down big time. And we need to get very serious about our faith, or you're not going to have a place like this. It'll be, you know what we're going to talk about? In less than 10 years, we'll be, well, it wasn't nice when we went to church, we had that night, well, didn't we have a nice time? Is that that? That's what we're going to lose. So I pray that you, if anything of what I have said here today, that you'll be bold with God's word and reach out and share, share the word of the Lord. Or else again, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. What a tragedy that would be. And it doesn't have to be. If each of us get right with the Lord, I don't know what your, serious, your, your condition is. Are you right with God? Or maybe there's some sin in your life you're sort of harboring, compromising with and all this. You got that? Are you dealing with this? Confess it to the Lord today before we close. If there's doubt in your mind what's going on in your heart, confess it to God now. Because the devil obviously will give you every reason not to. Oh, he's just talking, you know, let that guy go. And you know how these, but no, there has to be a decision when you come to Christ. Yes, Lord, I have this sin in my life. Forgive me of it. And then as best you can, by the power of the Lord, turn from it and get bold and being aggressive with the word of God, aggressive in your Christian life, leading others to Jesus Christ. We can either do that or go the way of every other nation, <laughs> you know, what it used to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to give you thanks that we are able to gather here this day. We thank you for the marvelous people that comprise this church. Father, we enjoy so much being fellowshipping with this particular body of people. We call down your blessing on it. If the church has a particular sin, we ask that you will drive it away, give repentance. If there's anyone here today who's thinking of something that they're engaged with and they know it's not right, that right now, as you have opportunity, confess it before God right now. Say, yes, Lord, I do this, or I've done it, or I want to, you know what's in your mind. Tell the Lord about it now, as I am quiet for 15 seconds. And then, Father, having shared these things, that we get up off of our spiritual knees and go forward in power, living a godly life, praying that our men truly, genuinely love their wives, that the wives will truly support their husbands, that the children will be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that the church will stand for sound doctrine, that souls will get saved, that this will be a church of great power by the Spirit of God. Guide us to that end. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. How glorious it is to fellowship with the believers. How glorious is this? As I look out here, I know not one person here deserves to be saved, especially me. And yet you did. You saved us. You sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. was buried, resurrected, showing to us that he is the divine, inerrant son of God. And you drew us irresistibly unto him. What more could we possibly ask? Thank you, O Lord, for this gathering. And we thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.